Exodus, the 34th chapter, verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him, before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for, the th- for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward earth and worshiped. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated and let's uh, take a moment to pray together. Father God, we come to you today in faith knowing that you are the God who has spoken in your word. Father, that every sentence, every passage, every theme, Father, everything points to Jesus to make us wise for salvation in Christ. So Father, now on Resurrection Sunday, we ask that you show us Jesus' death and his resurrection from a text few of us would have thought you could. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. How do we know that God is good? How do we know that God is a God worthy of glory, worthy of worship? You see, this is Resurrection Day, and so we have a number of different opinions and viewpoints of God. There are some here that see God as primarily just. Just look at the Old Testament, they say. You'll find fire consuming entire cities. You'll see the ground swallowing people up and plagues wiping out thousands. Still others see God as primarily a gracious God. In their minds, God forgives sins and only threatens judgment. In the end, he'll never really act on it, and everybody kind of gets away, and it's not really something that he takes pleasure in to be a God of justice. Now, though both perspectives have some elements of truth, neither perspective is fully correct. And consequently, neither perspective displays the glory and goodness of who God really is. As we're going to see in Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, God's goodness is displayed when God's grace and justice mingle. It's not just God's glory in only justice. It's not just God's glory in only grace. It's God's glory and goodness when grace and justice merge. And this way we're going to see how the Lord can be a God merciful and gracious, forgiving sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's a truth that's full of pregnant meaning, that's, that's going to be fulfilled ultimately in the gospel, ultimately in Jesus. Exodus 34 reveals to us who our Savior is and what He has done for us as God's mercy and wrath embrace at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the overall question, if you're new with us, we've been going through Exodus for months. Um, we just happened to fall on this text on Easter Sunday. And so we're going to go through this text just like normal, and you're going to see that this text is a resurrection text just like all the others. It's going to be a text that talks about Jesus' death, His sufficiency, His fullness, His glory, just like all the rest. 
The overall question Exodus seeks to answer is this. How can a holy God establish his holy presence with the sinful people? God's holiness is one that if sinners come into the presence of a holy God, they'll be burned up. He's a all-consuming God. He's a God whose white hot wrath burns against sin. He's so pure, so holy that sinners don't stand a chance to stand in his presence. And so the question is, how can God accomplish a burning bush type relationship with his people where God's fire dwells on his people, but they're not burned? I, uh, Exodus 32, as we saw last week, complicated things greatly, didn't it? Israel worshipped the golden calf. They traded their true God for a false God. It was like spiritual adultery in which the loving husband was cast aside for an abusive former lover. As a result, God was righteously angry and he threatened to wipe them off the map, to wipe them off the face of the earth and begin again with Moses. And it was only because of Moses, Israel's mediator, the one who stand between, stood between God and Israel, the one who looked God in the face and in his, in the face of his wrath and turned it aside, that Israel is still alive and allowed to live. Now, having allowed Israel to live, God guaranteed that Israel would have the land he promised to Abraham. We begin today in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. God says this, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In Exodus 32, God allowed life, but guaranteed no lordship. Now, in Exodus 33, he is going to give the promised land, but he gives no promise that he will be their Lord in the land. It is literally a land without Lord. It is, it is the language of separation that we're meant to hear here. God says, I will not go among you. He says, my angel, my presence will go before you, but it won't go among you. It won't go in the midst of you. It'll go before you, separated from you still. And he tells them that the moment that he, if he were to dwell in their presence, he would consume them because they're a rebellious, sinful people. God and sin do not mix. God's fire, sin is like dry, nasty, wooden rottedness, ruin that just gets burnt up quicker than Northern Dom's roof. Holy fire, all-consuming, smoke billowing up into the sky as soon as God and sin merge together. What Israel needed, however, is not just some promise that they're going to be allowed to survive. It's not just a promise that they're going to be able to live despite God's wrath and have the land. They needed God's presence to stay with them and among them. And so while Moses ensured that Israel would survive, he had not yet secured a solution to their greatest problem. Their greatest problem wasn't that they didn't have a land. Their greatest problem wasn't that they needed to live free from Egypt. Their greatest problem was that they needed God. Life with God. 
The main goal of Exodus was never freedom from Egypt. The main goal of Exodus was never life in the promised land. The main goal of Exodus has always been freedom from slavery, life in the land with God. That's the goal. God is the goal of Exodus. And so without God, Exodus is not accomplished. It remains unfulfilled. Now, when Israel heard what God said to Moses, they received the message as a disastrous word. Now, it sounds like good news, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, we sinned, we lost God, but we get the land. We sinned, we lost God, but we get to remain alive. But they didn't hear that in a good way. They heard it as a disastrous word, and they mourned. They stripped themselves off of all the jewelry and all the symbols of their joy and all their symbols of happiness. They looked like a funeral procession mourning and singing dirges and lamenting and grieving because they had been bereaved of their relationship with God. They had murdered his covenant, and this is the funeral. Now, Israel's response to the Lord's words should show us that life simply cannot be good without God. Even if a person has all that they could ever want, wealth without God is poverty. Life without God is death. A full belly without God is hunger. A mouthful of milk and honey without God is bitter. Heaven without God is hell. We simply cannot have good without God. Our lives lived in prosperity without God is not really prosperity, but spiritual, physical, complete, absolute destitution. That's the truth that we see here. Whatever you think you need, a reputation, a name for yourself, more money, bigger house, nicer car, unless your primary thought is, I need God more than anything else, you can have all of those things and still have nothing. A man who has nothing but has God has everything. A man who has everything but has not God has nothing. That's what Israel shows us. The problem of God's presence is seen further in verse 7, which says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp. Now, three times we hear this language, this tent outside of the camp, far off from the camp. It's pitched way out there. Where is God? Not in the midst of Israel. He's way out there. This isn't the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is meant to be a permanent dwelling place for God in the middle of Israel's campsite. And yet God pitches his tent all the way outside, far separated from Israel's. There's a separation. Every time that he would go out to meet with God, Moses would would walk and the people would see him and they would stand and rise. They understood that Moses was meeting with the Lord Most High. They would see the cloud descend. And so before all Israel, in the eyes of all, they're realizing that their relationship with God hangs solely on the words of a mediator, on someone going on their behalf where they cannot go, bridging the separation. Moses, on behalf of Israel, going into God to speak to him, to to plead for them. If there's one man in all of Israel that can bridge the separation, it's him. 
If there's one man in all of Israel that can plead with God to move his tent from outside the camp to in the middle of the camp so that they could have God, so that they could have the goal of the Exodus, it's this man and him alone. And so it says in verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Can you imagine in all the camp, millions of people, there's only one that can go and speak to God for you. To go to God, you've got to go to this man. To speak to God, you have to have this man speak for you. What Exodus is doing is it's training our minds to understand the need for a mediator. We are sinful people. God's a holy God. We can't mix, so we need a mediator who will bridge that gap and bridge the separation, who will speak to God for us and bring God's word to us, build a relationship between us. And that's what Moses is trying to do. Now, Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23, kind of give us a look at one of those tent meetings. What did it look like? What did, what, did God, what did Moses and God speak about when they were out there in the tent of meeting? Well, we have one little glimpse of what it, what it looked like um, this one time. Moses lamented to God, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, the first thing to notice here is that Moses interceded for Israel based on his own favor with God. He has a great relationship with God. And he pleads for the rest of Israel who doesn't have a good relationship with God based on his own good relationship with God. He points to his own favor. He utilizes his own unique privileged position in the, in the face of God, in the presence of God to plead for others to be brought in as well. He was bold because there was much at stake. Do you realize if Moses cannot convince God to dwell among his people. Moses will one day die. Israel will live in the land and they will have no God with them. If Moses isn't successful, all Israel dies godless. So he points back. Look at me. Remember them. Look at my favor. Treat them with that favor. You give me grace. Give them grace. God answered in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Again, sounds like good news, doesn't it? God gave Moses what he was asking, right? Well, no. The verse can be translated to say, my face will go with you. And it sounds like good news. But as we get into it, we see that the the you that is promised and I will give you rest is not plural. I'm not going to give all Israel rest rest. I'm going to give you, Moses, rest. You will continue to have a unique relationship. You will continue to have goodness and grace and mercy. You will. It doesn't say Israel. So God still hasn't given Moses what he's asking for. It's like Moses has a key to the locked friendship of God. But Moses is asking, look, you gave me a key because we're friends. Can you not open the door for all Israel to enjoy that same friendship? 
God says, no, I'll give you the key and I'll give it alone. But Moses is not satisfied with that. He wants the door to be flung open wide for all God's people. That's why he says in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Listen to how he continues to bring in the people of God into a conversation about him and God. For how shall it, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people... Is it not in your going with us, plural, that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I mean, Moses is basically saying, look, God, I know you and I are good. You and I have a relationship. But the thing that makes Israel distinct is your relationship with all of us, not just with me. Not just with me. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, if I were Moses, I'd be tempted to kick back and relax. I've secured grace for myself. I have God's guarantee that I am going to get rest. What would have happened to the rest of Israel if Moses would have done that? What would have happened if Moses would have said, Great God, Maybe we should get a big screen in the tent of meeting so we don't have to talk anymore about the people of Israel. We just watch football games together. What would have happened if Israel would have just taken that guarantee that he himself is okay? My friends, is that not what we do all the time? We have this special, unique, privileged place as the people of God. We've been given access into the Holy of Holies. The, the veil has been torn. Jesus has made way for us to enter the Holy of Holies. And the only way to enter into the special holy place and into a special relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we set back on our rears and we think, I'm good, that's great, done, and it's over, and yet we fail to live up to the kind of mediation we're called to. My friends, you have the ear of God as the people of God. Before your mouth even opens, God knows the words of your prayer. Why not use that to pray for people who don't know him? You have God's guaranteed covenant love and promises. You have rest and peace and mercy and grace and everlasting joy and love. And yet we squander it and sit back and hold it instead of asking God, give it to them also. I am super challenged as I read Moses because I've done the same thing over and over again. And here I am on Resurrection Sunday, glorying in the fact that Jesus has raised from the dead and that I have a resurrection guaranteed for me, that death means nothing to me anymore. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to fear it. I have joy. I have peace. I can look scary situations in the eye and not bat an eye because of my faith in Christ. And yet there's all kinds of people who don't have that access. There's all kinds of people who are turning to everything else, trying to find peace. They're struggling. They're fighting. They're begging for some kind of 
some kind of guarantee that they're going to have rest. And yet here we are as the people of God being judgmental and sitting back and saying, you know what, we're good, even if you're not. Instead of using our privileged position to bring people before the face of God. God, be with my neighbor. He doesn't know you. God, be with my sister. She's far from you. You brought me near. I wasn't looking for you. You drew me to Christ. You have saved me. You have raised me from the dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but you made me alive in Jesus Christ. God, raise my sister through faith. How many times do we plead like that? I think if we Christians are going to be true to what we claim on Resurrection Day, we will be a people who will not just sit back on Resurrection Day and smile about the peace we personally have. But we will think about the peace that Christ has brought us personally, and we will think about how we can make that as public as possible. There should be no silent Christians on Resurrection Day. Moses didn't sit back, and neither should we. And God says in verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Now the second truth to see is that Moses interceded with a desire to make God's glory known. Having secured God's guarantee that his request would be granted, that God would go with all Israel, not just before them, not just beside them, not just with them, but among them, that God would actually be living with them. Moses asked, what else is there to say? He says, please show me your glory. Now we often think of that as kind of branching off. Maybe this is a different request, but it's a continuation of the first request. By God, by Moses asking God to give grace and extend the grace he's been given to all Israel, he is insinuating that God will be glorified in doing so. That this will be a way God's glory will be displayed. And again to this request, God agreed. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now that's interesting. God, are you not listening here? Moses asked to see your glory. And you say, okay, I'll show you my goodness and I'll tell you my name. Is God not paying attention? Or does God know what he's saying? God's glory, God's goodness, God's name are one and the same. To know the glorious God is to know the good God, is to know God by name. Goodness, glory, name, all together. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. He is the God of grace the master of mercy. He's dependent on no one. There's nothing in me or in Israel that made him want to be merciful. My friends, if God is scrounging for reasons to show mercy and grace to Israel, he's not going to find any. There's no reason to be gracious to Israel. They traded him for a lesser God. They cheated on him. And yet God's saying, I will be gracious on whom I'll be gracious. It doesn't depend on them. It depends on me. My grace is sufficient. It depends on me. 
It is the gracious, good, loving will of God that he pursues us to restore a relationship with him. That's the glory of the gospel. We have a God who doesn't say, I will be gracious to those who are good. He doesn't say that. I will be gracious to those who are godly and show up on Easter. He doesn't say that. He says, I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. Now, interestingly, when God uh, tells Moses that he's going to, going to reveal himself to show his goodness and show his mercy, we see also, though, that Moses is still restricted. He's not going to be able to see the full glory of God, the full goodness. He's not allowed to see God's face. And God says, no man can see my face and live. So Moses himself is a man that's restricted and limited. He's there pleading on behalf of all Israel that God would restore the relationship and bring peace. And yet Moses himself doesn't have full access to God in the sense of being able to see God's face. Even Moses when God's pure and holy eyes are revealed, has to turn his head to live. I just think, just remembering that, just putting that, okay, so Moses is a mediator, but he's just an imperfect picture of someone more perfect to come. Just putting a a little tack in it and remembering, here's a mediator who pleads like someone else we know, but yet who can't do everything that someone else can do. We're going to get there in just a moment. I'm trying to tie all these in into one glorious knot. So God told Moses to cut two tablets of stone, indicating that he would renew the covenant and that he would restore that which was broken. He also made it clear that no one else was permitted to be on the mountain. It's just going to be God and Moses alone. A man, representative of Israel, and God. And that's going to be the two of them all by themselves, God and his mediator. Now listen to what verses 5 through 7 say. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now just listen to how confusing this is. If you if you are listening well, you will just be scratching your head at the end of this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, period. Close the book, it's done. That's the God we want. But it doesn't say that. It follows up. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and, third and fourth generation. He's not just the God who judges sin, but judges it completely. I'm just reading that. I'm just, okay, in verse 7... God says emphatically that he will forgive any type of wrongdoing. He uses three synonyms. Iniquity, transgression, sin. I'll forgive sin, I'll forgive sin, I'll forgive sin. Great. He's a forgiving guy. He's going to be so gracious. He's going to forgive any sin. And yet, verse 7 also seems to claim the contrary. But who will by no means... clear the guilty. Okay, so God, I'm just a little confused. If I were Moses, I just it seems like you're saying, in my grace, I will forgive any sin, but in my justice, I will leave no sin unpunished. 
God's not making sense so far, is he? Bit of a confusing name, isn't it? If not downright contradictory. Because if God punishes sin and doesn't forgive sin, he's not a gracious God. And yet, if God forgives sin and doesn't punish sin, he's not a just God. So he's either going to be one or the other. How can he claim to be both? How in the world is God going to reveal himself to be the Lord, the Lord, good and mighty and gracious and just all at once? Exodus 34 doesn't give an answer. Because Exodus 34 doesn't have the person there yet in which God's profound mystery is made known. You have to wait an entire testament to get to the answer of how this name works itself out and is no longer a paradox, but a profound good news for us and a life-giving, life-saving, spirit, soul-searching kind of message here that God's giving. Now, when Moses heard the proclamation, he did what every one of us should do when we see the same proclamation. He bowed and worshiped. And then he pleaded once more. This shows that his his plea for God to show his goodness and his glory is connected with his intercession for God's people, for Israel. He says, God, will you still go with us in the midst of Israel, despite them being a stiff-necked people? He puts it right there. And then he says, by the way, since you said that you are the Lord, gracious who forgives, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And at last, the Lord opened wide the door of friendship. Moses had been pleading that his friends would be able to allow, be allowed in the locked door that he alone was allowed to enjoy. Moses had friendship with God. Moses could speak to God. Moses had favor with God. And now God finally makes sure that that favor will be extended to all Israel. He says this, behold, I am making a covenant. Listen to the beauty of this. Just imagine, Moses is pleading. He knows that the whole nation is on his shoulders. And then God says to him in sweet words, before all your people, I will do marvels. Such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so the original covenants remade based on God saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, forgiving sin, and yet who will by no means clear the guilty. How in the world can God say, I will pass over this sin? I mean, if, if, we're, if we're thinking about God, God just said he would leave no sin unpunished. And yet this sin, at least he allows to be temporarily unpunished. It's like he's passing over it patiently, saying, I'll come back to it. And yet he allows the covenant to be made. But even more, he just, he, the rest of the chapter, he gives laws. Now, for those of us that think that grace means that we can now do whatever we want, the rest of Exodus 34 shows that you can't. God is a gracious God. God is a gracious God, but he's still a holy God. Don't divide God up into parts. That's the message here. Don't divide God up into a part, into parts. He is the God of grace, but he is still God. 
The whole idea here is now that Israel has received God's grace, maybe now they'll obey God because they've seen his goodness and mercy. And we find out later that's not what happens. And yet God is good to make sure that the covenant is restored. And that's how chapter 34 ends. Moses not eating or drinking for 40 days and 40 nights. Sounds like somebody else we know. Pleads on behalf of Israel and the covenant is renewed. Now for centuries, this is the name of God. The Lord, the Lord, God, gracious and merciful, so to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, sin and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And any time a, a biblical writer wanted to talk about the Lord, they quote this verse. Because this is like the key way to know who God is. God himself gave his name. You want to know God's name? Here it is. So you see this name repeated throughout the entire Old Testament, but they had no clue what it meant. How in the world would God be gracious and just? And how would he display his goodness in his grace and in his justice? How can God mingle mercy with justice and restore relationships with God? Will he ever give a mediator who's unlimited, who won't have to be told, you can't see my face or you will die? Well, the mystery is solved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though God declared his glorious and good name on a mountain in Exodus, the profound meaning of what he declared was eventually displayed in its fullness on another mountain named Golgotha. It is not in Exodus that we see the full goodness and glory and name of God. It's in the cross of Christ. How did God display his goodness? Showing that he is a God who forgives sin and yet who judges sin at the same time. Just think about it. What moment does God set for all the world to see? I am the glorious God who can take these two things that you thought could never be brought together and bring them together and save your soul. God's goodness is revealed in the face of the crucified Savior. And when we look on his cross, when we look on the nail marks in his hands and the bloody side and the crown of thorns and his back dripping from all the whips that he took for us by his wounds, we are healed. When we look to Jesus, we hear this subtle message. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by, by who, who will by no means clear the guilty. Justice poured out completely on the head of Christ. Justice so severe that Jesus is left on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you treat me like Exodus 32 Israel who worshiped the golden calf when I have never worshiped any other God? Why do you pour out the lex talionis, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, when I have hit no one's eye, when I have knocked out no one's tooth? Why am I condemned to die when I did nothing worthy of death? And the goodness and the name and the glory of God says, he by no means clears the guilty. But what's the result? We're forgiven. Every sin. There are some of you in here today that are struggling with sins. Struggling with the guilt of sin. Maybe your past. 
Maybe something that you currently know that nobody else knows. You feel the weight and burden of that guilt, and you just wonder, how, how am I going to get out from underneath this burden? And Jesus whispers into your heart, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious, who did not clear the guilty, but punished the guilty in me. There is no sin, no transgression, no iniquity that the the blood of Jesus Christ cannot, will not cover for those who come to him in faith. God punished your sin on his cross so that you could have his life. Grace, justice, embracing at the cross, hugging, mercy, wrath together. Gore and glory, goodness and God, just all wrapped up in one magnificent event. Death and deliverance. And we're left remembering Golgotha, thinking about the day the Lord passed by and showed his goodness, his glory, and his name in the death of Jesus Christ. That's your Savior. It's not just this theoretical thing that Christians get together and we kind of give lip service to. It's something that we actually believe because our whole life depends on it. We believe that He has paid for my sin. Done. The sins I commit tomorrow, God forbid, He still paid for those sins on His cross. Guilty me yesterday, guilty me today, guilty me tomorrow has not been cleared except for punishment in Jesus. Now I'm not guilty today, yesterday, or tomorrow. I am free from guilt. I am forgiven forever till I'm dead. And then when I rise again in Jesus Christ, I have a perfect relationship with God because his justice was poured out on me forever. I will never be judged for the sins he already punished. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the Lord is a God who is gracious and just and mixes those two, marries them at the altar of the cross. That's good news, right? You would think that would be enough. But that was Good Friday's sermon. (laughs) This is Resurrection Sunday. It's not enough just to have a view of God's goodness and glory and name at the cross. Because God's glory, goodness, and name show up again at the empty tomb. The grace Moses secured in part for Israel, God, Jesus Christ, secured permanently when he rose again on the third day. He was the crucified king. Three days later was the risen king. Crucified and risen, bringing grace because of the justice he paid for. And now we have something that Moses only longed for. Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you some of it. You'll catch a glimpse of it. You can see my back as I pass by. You can hear me when I speak. But my friends, God doesn't say that to us. Because in Jesus Christ, in faith, we behold the face of God and live. 
Moses couldn't see God's face and live. We see the face of Jesus Christ, and therefore we see the face of God and live. He's the perfect mediator. Now, as we get to Exodus 34, we see that whatever became Moses all of a sudden became Israel's because of his graciousness. The friend of God opens the way for all Israel to be made friends of God. But my friends, Jesus is so much better than that. He's not a friend of God. He's the son of God. And he's not just a friend who pleads with God to befriend other sinners. No, he is the son who makes us sons and daughters. We're not just befriended, we're adopted. Do you hear that? That's the good news of the gospel. You are not just a friend of God. You're not just near him. You are a child. What is Christ has now become yours. Listen to Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we had nothing of our own, when we were in poverty spiritually, when we were in death spiritually, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And guess what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I just want you to imagine this banquet table. And on every seat is Jesus' name. And yet that's your reservation. His seat's your seat. His key to the relationship with God is your key. Moses pleaded, God... From my grace, from the grace you have shown me, now give grace to everyone else. Jesus didn't need grace. Jesus said something even better. From my righteousness, give them righteousness. When you look at them, think of me. Do you hear how amazing that is? Right now, with all of your sins and all of your weaknesses and all of your idolatries, all of your filth, with all of your dirt, when God sees you, you are not a condemned sinner if you're in Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the kind of big no-nos that I've committed. Yeah, I don't. He does. He died for them. Also that when God sees Christ, he sees you. When God sees Christ's seat in his presence, he sees your seat in his presence. When he sees Jehovah to scan you, the Lord, my righteousness. When he sees his righteousness, he sees my righteousness. It's not mine. It's been given to me. Because of a risen and resurrected Savior. What then? Well, Moses only saw in part what we now see in full. And his response was to fall down on his face and worship. We see better than Moses did. We don't just get the glimpse. We get a full beholding moment of Jesus. And yet we can do that without actually fully worshiping him. That's bizarre. 
What Moses asked for, God has given to us. So I think that the most appropriate application on Resurrection Sunday and thinking about how God has fulfilled Exodus 33 and 34 in Christ and that we now behold God as a friend and he speaks to us in Jesus Christ and grace and justice poured out on him. I think the most appropriate thing to do is to worship. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory. That's a verb. That's bizarre. Not a noun. Glory in his holy name. This is permission to bask in the fact that the Lord, the Lord is a God. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin, iniquity, and transgression, but who by no means cleared the guilty. Let's pray. Father God, your gospel is amazing. I pray, Lord, as we sing now, we don't sing just to this imaginary figure in our head, Father, but we sing to your name. You're the Lord who is gracious and merciful and just. So God, as we sing, I pray that we will hear the tones of justice, that Jesus died. That's justice. And yet, Father... Help us also to hear the tones of forgiveness and grace that has come because of what he purchased for us. And in that, forever you are glorified. Forever Jesus is lifted high. We long to see your glory and we thank you. You have shown it to us in Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.